All right, returning this morning after a week off in uh, for the resurrection, back this morning to Matthew in chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 12, two kings, the tender and the troubled. And this is going to be part one of a multi-part installment here in Matthew chapter 2. And I would remind you that the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, with patriarchs and monarchs and Canaanite prostitutes, Moabite widows, incest and adultery kings and Chaldeans and a betrothed virgin with child. Joseph, who was a just man, and the angelic declaration to him that you shall call his name Jesus. Literally, Yahweh is salvation. You will call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Now this was no common birth. Nor will it be a common baby shower. Matthew chapter 2 and verse 1. It says that now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. In the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Now we three kings of Orient are wise men. It's one of the first Bible stories that we remember from our childhood. For me, we read this passage of scripture every single morning on Christmas morning when I was a small child all the way up to the point that I left home to be out on my own. I can remember as a a small child sitting there and looking at the presents and wondering how long it was going to take to read, you know, the birth narrative and, you know, you would finish in Matthew and then you had to go to Luke and it was like it was never going to end. And, and then after salvation, I remember, especially as I began to get older and become more mature, that you begin to, to revel in the details of the birth of Christ and see the weight of that moment. Is I can't remember 99% of the presents I opened on Christmas morning. But I can remember this. Wise men, not wise guys, but wise men. And yet, if you do more than a 
cursory Christmas morning type of reading, one of the things that seems to become clear right off the bat is that the three wise men just honestly don't seem to be very, well, wise. I mean, after all, they're from the East. They're not from around these parts. They're Yankees, if you will. They don't fit in. They're not dressed like everybody else is dressed. They don't talk like everybody else talks. And they're certainly out of their element of fish out of the water, a crappie on the bank. The phrase that they came saying. When it says that these men came from the east to Jerusalem saying, they came saying, there are two verbs here, and and I'm not going to get dorky this morning, but the interesting thing about them is you would think in the narrative that the verbs would be in the same tense, and they're not. And so the first one is a real fancy type of Greek verb called an aorist verb that just, it's like explaining something in a snapshot event. It just grabs the entire ball of wax all at once and says, "This this is the event that happened. Did you watch the game? The whole thing. And then Within that is here are some of the things that happened in the event. And so they came to Jerusalem. And this encompasses the seeing the star from the east and, you know, packing up the camels and humping it across the desert. Get it? Humping it across the desert. Right? Humping it across the desert. It takes two years and they, they, they get to the gate. And, I mean, this is the whole thing all the way up until they get to Jerusalem itself. And yet there's, when they came, they came doing something not in the aorist tense but in the present tense. They came saying... Where is the king of the Jews been born? For we have seen a star rising in the east. And so the connotation here is that in the entirety of their coming, at every moment that was present time, they were asking this question. And so I think that we have this kind of picture in our head that the three wise men show up in Jerusalem. They're very regally dressed, right? And they, they ride up on their camels to the front of, of Herod's palace and they knock on the door and the guard says, who's here? And they say, the three wise men will by all means come in. And they look at Herod and go, tell us where has been born the king of the Jews. This is not the way it worked. They would have met shepherds in the fields on the way into town, people in the villages on the outskirts. Tell us where has been born the king of the Jews. That that we've seen a star rise in the east and we've come to worship him. And the guards at the city gate, when they get to Jerusalem, they're asking them. And the guy that's begging for alms over here, they're asking them. And when they get to the inn where they're going to stay, they're asking the innkeeper and they're asking, they're asking, they're asking, where is he, 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 until it creates such a stir that it finally falls upon the ears of the king. Not directly from their mouth, but from the hubbub that's been created in Jerusalem over their asking. Which, if you know anything about politics, is a much more dicey situation than simply having three diplomats stand in front of you and ask a question. It's become a movement. It's gone viral. Now, to understand the significance of this, you have to understand the nature of Herod the Great. Herod is a proselyte Jew, sort of. That is to say that he claims to be one. But he's the furthest thing from one in reality. He's much more of a Roman according to his culture. And by his bloodline, he is a half-blood Jew on his mother's side, but an Edomite on his father's the descendants of Esau, a godless people 
who sold the birthright that was Jesus Christ for a bowl of beans. His father was a half-blood Edomite Jew who married into an Arab royal family, but when the Romans invaded Judea, instead of supporting his own people on either side of his family, he threw his support behind Rome, and therefore... He became, him and his family, a favorite of Julius Caesar. And Herod would eventually become a very close friend of Mark Anthony. Anthony appointed him to be Tetrarch of Galilee. But it was in name only and he didn't really have any muscle behind him. And so in just a few years after becoming Tetrarch, he had to flee Jerusalem upon the Parthian invasion. For a man like Herod, that hurts your pride. Well, the Romans knew what he was capable of. And so, in 40 AD, BC, excuse me, in 40 BC, the Roman Senate declared him to be king in Judea and gave him the army that he needed to go fulfill it and make good on the claim he did. And in 37 B.C., he would become the unchallenged ruler of Judea for the next 32 years. The things that Herod built, conquered, and did still stand there to this day. They provide the backdrop for the narrative of the New Testament. He was a brilliant military tactician, a brilliant orator, and a brilliant builder. The ruins of his swimming pool... Huh? still stand in Caesarea Maritima today, 2,000 years later. Herod's brilliance was only surpassed by his cruelty. He would ultimately die a madman. Flavius Josephus said of him, he was brutish and a stranger to all humanity. This brutishness extended even to mass infanticide. In Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18, it says that when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all of the region who were two years old or under according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. And then it was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is the brutality of Herod the Great. This is the king whose these men's incessant, incessant questioning troubled. You go, yeah, in light of that, they don't seem very wise after all. As a matter of fact, the wisest man to ever be born of woman, Solomon, said in Proverbs chapter 8, verse 12, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. And I find knowledge in discretion. 
But here are the wise men, and they're not being prudent at all, and they're not showing any kind of discretion, and it troubles the ears of a brutal king. Well, words mean things. And so if they're not acting particularly wise, why do we refer to them as wise men? The word in the Greek for the plural is magi. We bring it into the English typically as magi. The singular is magus. And while the, the stem of the Greek word would lead you to believe that it, it means great men, Historically speaking, this phrase was used to speak of the priests, the priests among the Medes and the Persians and the Babylonians to the east of Israel who used astronomy in the service of cultic astrology. In other words, they blended astronomy and the, the calculated study of the heavens into demonic paganism. Think Arabian Nights, complete with jinns and mysticism, but not the I dream of genie kind of jinns and genies, but the demonic kind that will devour you and lead to the death of millions. It's only used one other time in Scripture, this magios. It's where we get our word for magician in the English, which if you read it in the ESV, that's what they're going to translate it as in Acts chapter 13, verses 6 through 8, where he's talking about a Jew who's named Bar-Jesus. But when we think of magician, we think of sleight of hand and illusionist and, and cheap tricks that you can buy at the magic shop in a big city mall. So I think it's probably better to render it the way the new King James renders it, which is sorcerer. And so it reads like this. Now when they had gone through the isle of Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. And this man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God, but Elmas... The sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the truth. And so you see this, this concept, magus, magios, we see it twice in Scripture, once in the birth narrative of Christ in Matthew chapter 2, and then here in Acts where Saul and Barnabas are trying to bring the gospel, the good news, the word of God to this proconsul Sergius Paulus, and there is a sorcerer, a false prophet, who is opposing everything of the kingdom. Not exactly a flattering description. And so the question is, while sorcerer or magician or mystic is a lot closer to what the word actually means, why do we translate it as wise men? And don't get me wrong, I think we should. We should translate it as wise men. But why should we and why do we? Well, it's not because of the verbiage. The verbiage ought to get you to sorcerer. 
or magician at least. And it's not that they were smart enough or intelligent enough to follow a star. I mean, guys, this star, if you read the narrative and pay close attention, you will notice that it does not play by the rules that a star is supposed to play by. So when you read the stuff and all the kind of um, the, the, the bad apologetics that want to lead you to a place where they say, well, there was a supernova in 4 AD or 4 BC or 2 BC or whatever the case, man, this thing does not play by, this thing does not play by astronomical rules. It rises and holds its position for two years until it gets them to Jerusalem. And then being over Jerusalem, then moves about 15 miles to rest over Bethlehem. Now that's one tricky star. Man, any stargazing mysticism worshiper worth their salt that sees that thing is going to go, huh, There's nothing in any of the writings of the priests that came before me about anything like this. We better go check it out. It's not because of the verbiage that we call them wise. It's not because they were smart enough to follow a star. And even if if they had simply been smart enough to follow the star, natural knowledge only leads men to build a more convincing idol. Natural knowledge has never served to lead men to Christ. Men are brought to Christ as they are carried along in the call to conviction by the Holy Spirit. The book of Romans tells us this point blank. In Romans chapter 1, in verse 18, it says that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So here's the nature of man that even though he can see the star, he can see the truth, He will use his unrighteousness to suppress the reality of that truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. And so they are without excuse. And so follow Paul real quick here. He says, okay, wrath is revealed from heaven by God against men. Why? Because they're unrighteous and they use that unrighteousness to suppress the truth. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that God gave men natural faculties like eyes and ears and nose and tongue and touch and a brain that can look up and go, man, on that mountain peak over there with all those jagged teeth on it, that star moves a certain amount every single time it rises. And it's been doing it for hundreds and hundreds of generations. And we've been marking it down. But they take this knowledge and they don't use this knowledge to seek the Creator that displayed His deity and His power. Instead, they look at it and they go, okay, that is some magnificent stuff. And when we consider our idol over here, we consider the God we fabricated, it really doesn't live up to that. So we need to take this knowledge of the Creator God and use it to improve our idol. Which is exactly what they do. For it says in verse 21, For although they knew God, 
They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened and claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resorting mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so this is why men are without excuse is because God put himself on display in front of them, but because of their unrighteousness, they took the information that God displayed about himself And ever since the fall of Adam, they've been using that to make more and more and more convincing idols. They started off with little clay ones baked in a fire. And then they figured out how to smelt copper. Now they're making bronze ones gold gilded and jewel encrusted ones and the new ones even have touch screens on them they're amazing things just make better ones and better ones and better ones and better ones and so why do we call these men wise it's not according to the verbiage it's not according to the language it's not according to the fact that they were willing to to open their eyes and follow what was obviously a supernatural event call them wise because of the way that they responded when they encountered the living God that's what makes them wise not the intelligence not the willingness to risk the journey across the sands of Arabia from what was probably modern day Iran Not because they ran around Jerusalem like Chicken Little. Where's the king? Where's the king? Where's the king? Where's the king? But because of the way they responded when they found the king. Verse 9, Matthew chapter 2. They find a king. And I would dare say a very different condition than what they expected to find him. It says, after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. When they came, they rejoiced with great joy. And then they worshipped him upon seeing him. The word for worship here is, and I only mention it because we get an English word out of it and they sound a lot the same. The word for worship is proskenio. Proskenio, and it, and it literally means to kiss towards. And so the idea is you, you, know, you, right, you kiss towards someone, which if you do that with enough zeal, will leave you proskinio on your face, which is where we get our word for prostrate. To prostrate yourself, to, to, to bow down. 
and worship. Now, the thing is, it's not particularly surprising in the ancient Near East that they would worship when they came before almost any high king. But what is really surprising is what happens next. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country another way. Herod is a man so violent and brutal that he is about to execute one of the most specific and greatest infanticides in the history of mankind. And this is far from his first offense. certainly won't be his last and they know it but at the end of the day there's a certain calculus that has to take place are you going to fear God or are you going to fear a troubled king now for men still in a very physical and not yet glorified state, it is very easy to focus on the, the, the fears and the dangers of a physical world. But I assure you, the fear and the danger of God Himself is much more substantial. And these men feared God more than they feared Herod. And friends, that is wisdom. For in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10 through 12, Solomon tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you will bear it alone. They're not wise because of the things they did in following a star. They're not wise because of the verbiage. They're wise because at the end of the day, they feared God more than men. And so coming, seeking the king of the Jews, they found him. Because if you seek this king for the sake of this king, you will always find him. And just like them, you will find him not to be what you expected. And so they found him. They found him not to be what they expected, and then to the glory of God, they acted accordingly. And I've got to drive home that last point this morning. Having found the Lord, they acted. He wasn't what they thought He would be. But having found Him, they were joyful and they acted accordingly. Friends, there is a time to seek God. 
There is a time to stop seeking God. You know, now what? Pastor, I think you misspoke. No, no, I didn't. Let me rephrase it. Maybe it'll make better sense if I say it this way. There is a time to seek the will of God in particular things. And there is a time to cease seeking the will of God in particular things. You know when that time is? The time to stop seeking God in a particular thing is when you've been seeking God in a particular thing and God reveals the answer to that which you have been seeking. Then you stop. The time of seeking has ended and the time of action has come. Something similar came up in a prayer meeting a few weeks back. And something, I've used this analogy before in describing this sort of thing. It's fine for a child to ask of his father. As a matter of fact, it's encouraged of a child to ask of his father. Right up until the point that the father gives the answer. And when the father gives the answer, it's time for the child to quit asking the father. And if he doesn't, It is no longer asking out of an honest place. It's badgering out of an agenda. You see. So, Dad, can I have a cookie? Maybe Dad doesn't answer. Just keeps working. Dad, can I have a cookie? Keeps working. Dad, can I have a cookie? Keeps working. Dad, can I have a cookie? No. Now it's time to stop asking. Now it's time for action. Refrain from having a cookie. On the other hand, maybe he says yes. Maybe he says yes. Now it's time to stop asking. It's time for action. Go get cookie. See? If you don't do that, but keep asking, what you're doing is allowing the act of seeking to become an excuse for inaction, which ultimately becomes the opposition of the very truth that one claims to seek. See, continuing, now hear me, let me say it one more time, that false seeking becoming the excuse for inaction, ultimately becomes the very opposition of the truth one claims to be seeking. That is to say that once the answer has been received and instead of accepting it, you continue seeking, 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 what you're really doing is looking for something other than the truth you received and therefore are in opposition to that true thing. You actually are... Continuing to seek after the truth has been revealed is in no way noble and it is in no way neutral. It is actually opposed to the truth. And this is not my opinion. It's what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, where he says, Always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, another two sorcerers, this time of the Egyptian persuasion, so these men also... Oppose the truth. 
And so this always seeking but never arriving at the truth when God promises that those that seek will find is an excuse for not accepting the truth that has been given and then becomes the very opposition of the truth. And that's not wisdom. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of the wisdom of wisdom, then opposition and obstinance against him is the beginning of idiocracy. And so, why do you call them wise? Because when God warned them in a dream, you can't trust the murderous Edomite. No matter how dangerous he is to you. They were faithful to do the hard thing, the dangerous thing. And they returned home, avoiding Herod another way. That's why they're wise men. Is because when the truth of God was revealed to them, they acted accordingly. No matter how difficult it was. need to get your head wrapped around that, Mount Zion. You need to get your heart wrapped around it. Because it often brings difficult things. They're always good things. They're always good things. But they're often very, very difficult. But wise men act when God speaks. 